Welcome to this week's episode of CTS Nets podcast, The Beat. I am your host, Dr. Brian Mitzman, thoracic surgeon with the University of Utah Health System and Director of Robotic Thoracic Surgery at the Huntsman Cancer Institute in Salt Lake City. CTS NetBeat focuses on the latest research, news, and interviews with the world of cardiothoracic surgery. In addition, you can keep up with the latest cardiothoracic news by subscribing to the CTS Net Journal and News Scan. This week, we jump into a few recent annals of thoracic surgery and JTCVS articles. Dr. Craig Baker's expert opinion on the current state of cardiothoracic surgery residence training, followed by a look at discharge on post-operative day one after lobectomy. Is it realistic or is it dangerous? Finally, Dr. Watkins and Cervase run through anatomy and technique for all five lobectomies in a featured CTSNet video submission posted last week. First created in 2008, six-year integrated cardiothoracic surgery residencies have now graduated numerous trainees and are a trusted pathway in our specialty. This match cycle alone, there were approximately 129 applicants for 39 spots. Impressed with JTCVS Open is an expert opinion from Dr. Craig Baker, Division Chief of Cardiac Surgery and Program Director of Thoracic Surgery at the University of Southern California. Now, for those that haven't been following and are wondering what JTCVS Open is, there are several new subjournals from the AATS, including Open and JTCVS Techniques. JTCVS Open is a peer-reviewed journal with the same peer reviewers and editorial board as the main JTCVS, which focuses on developments across the realm of CT surgery. While still maintaining the rigorous standards of the main journal, Open provides the opportunity for more surgeons in our community to be heard and present their academic work. Back to Dr. Baker's manuscript. USC has both an integrated program and traditional fellowship and has graduated trainees from both. Dr. Baker is therefore more than experienced to give his thoughts on training paradigms. When the I-6 programs were created over a decade ago, there was quite a bit of skepticism from our community. But as Dr. Baker describes, the proof is in the pudding. USC accepted their first two I-6 residents in 2012, graduated them in 2018, and after they completed con congenital training, both were hired back on as USC faculty. Granted, success in our field is variable and definitely based on the in individual and cannot be attributed specifically to type of training pathway. What this does show, though, is that not only is I-6 an adequate training pathway for surgical knowledge and skill to obtain a competitive superfellowship such as congenital, but that they'll be recruited back to major academic institutions when training is complete. So what is the overall point of an I-6 program? It's not to shorten training. As the name suggests, it's to truly integrate cardiothoracic training into the full training period for these residents rather than just the last few years. Cardiothoracic surgery as a field has changed drastically in the last 30 years. Besides open lobectomies and standard open heart operations, we now have VATS, robotic thoracic surgery, robotic cardiac surgery, advanced structural heart programs, minimally invasive cardiac procedures, endovascular procedures including TAVR, advanced bronchoscopy with ablation, and other endobronchiotherapies. It's nearly impossible to fit adequate expertise in each of these subcategories in two to three years of traditional fellowship. Integrated programs provide the opportunity to have a longer time frame to disperse these educational opportunities. There are now even I-8 programs, such as the one we just opened here at the University of Utah for the 2021 academic year. We recruited our first integrated resident from the University of Arizona, Joe Heiler. Joe, if you're listening, we're thrilled to have you start this summer. Besides the usual rotations of an I-6 program, I-8 allows the opportunity of two years of dedicated professional academic time, which is not just lab time, to pursue other interests, an MBA, an MPH, bench work, clinic, clinical research, 
It's a pathway to really help develop an academic CT surgeon scientist. Let's look at the downsides of an integrated program. What do we lose by not completing a general surgery residency? There's a foundation in the overall analysis of a surgical patient that we developed during five to eight years of general surgery that has the potential of being lost if there are too many focused subspecialty rotations. There's also the development of an expert skill set in the abdomen. Did I personally really need to perform 100 lap cholecystectomies as a resident to be an adequately trained general thoracic surgeon? Of course not. Did it advance my laparoscopic skills and help me completely uh, be comfortable in the abdomen? Absolutely. The ongoing debate is whether this advanced abdominal training is really necessary for a cardiac surgeon. It's not likely. Those with cardiac-specific interests are likely better suited for an integrated program. I have yet to be convinced, though, that integrated programs are really geared towards those with general thoracic interests. The majority of my general surgery skill set was solidified in my last two years of residency and found that uh, training necessary to be successful as a general thoracic surgeon. While there are numerous integrated programs out there that are now offering a general thoracic focus, I really have yet to see that the majority of integrated curricula are adequate for general thoracic surgery. Definitely check out Dr. Baker's full expert opinion. It's now in press with JTCVS Open, and the link is provided on the CTSNet Beat homepage. Okay, let's switch gears. Impressed with the Annals of Thoracic Surgery is a manuscript from Christopher Tao and colleagues at the Division of Thoracic and Esophageal Surgery at University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center. It's entitled, Factors Associated with Successful Postoperative Day 1 Discharge Following Anatomic Lung Resection. Using the STS database, they looked at six years' worth of data, 2012 to 2018, to analyze whether patients could be discharged on post-op day one after an anatomic lung resection with freedom from complications, readmission, and death. This paper was funded through the Society of Thoracic Surgeons Access and Publications Program, which provides statistical help from the Duke Clinical Research Institute. This is a follow-up to a previous manuscript they had published in JTCVS last year, looking at the overall trends of discharge after anatomic lung resection. In that paper, they found that from 2012 to 2017 in the STS database, the rate of post-op day one discharge increased from 3.4% to 5.3%. While they found that it's still uncommon, post-op day one discharge was safe with a similar risk of readmission and 30-day mortality. In that study, patient factors associated with day one discharge were younger age, lower comorbidity score, BMI above 25, higher baseline FEV1. Some surgical factors included middle or upper lobectomy, minimally invasive technique, and procedure time. These all seem obvious, but in the real world, many thoracic surgeons mandate a minimum two-day stay in the hospital after a lobectomy, regardless of patient and surgical factors. The question is whether this is really needed or just surgical dogma. As the authors showed, there is wide variability among surgeons, with 11 centers, that's only 4% here, discharging more than 20% of their patients on day one, and 102 centers, that's 37%, without any day one discharges. Let's get back to the recent publication. Again, the authors looked at successful post-op day one discharge, which was freedom from complication, readmission, and death within 30 days. After performing a univariate analysis to determine patient and procedural risk factors, the authors created an advanced multivariable risk model with a randomized training cohort for post-op day one discharge. Generally, what did the authors find? Of 2,480 patients discharged on post-op day one, only 6.1% had readmission within 30 days. Overall, 85.8% had freedom from any major post-operative event. While the developed risk score in this paper does not negate clinical judgment, 
it can be a useful adjunct determining those most likely to have a successful post-up day one discharge. As the authors note, Medicare began cutting reimbursement rates for hospitals with high readmission rates. On the other hand, as surgeons, we're pressed to discharge patients as soon as possible. Finding that balance of appropriate inpatient stay with low readmission rate is not straightforward. In a commentary to this article, Dr. Zhao and colleagues from the Peking Union, Union Medical College in, uh, Hospital in China expressed caution. As they note, they rarely found a patient capable of being discharged on post-op day one. Specifically, in their last four years, out of 2,819 anatomic lung resections, none could be discharged that early. To their point, they also noted that in a recent retrospective analysis of their data, only one patient out of 108, that's less than 1% of their lobes, were readmitted for surgery-related issues. Dr. Tao and colleagues responded, noting their concerns emphasizing that longer hospital stays do not equal lower readmission rates. Again, clinical judgment's important here, and strict criteria for who can be discharged early is necessary. Interestingly, they found that males had a higher likelihood of post-op day one failure due to urinary retention. More than 25% of the failures total were because of this. I'm curious if this is related to the use of Foley catheters. I've noticed that since avoiding routine Foley catheter use for minimally invasive lobectomies, our rate of urinary retention postoperatively has decreased substantially. So what's my personal take? I think post-op day one discharge after an anatomic lobe is reasonable in the right patient population. There's no reason why a patient with an uneventful minimally invasive lobectomy needs to sit around the hospital if they've had no air leaks in surgery, have minimal chest tube output, and do not have any concerning comorbidities. The balance I found is how far away from the hospital the patient lives. In my first practice after training, most of my patients lived within 15 minutes of the hospital. If a patient was discharged early and had any questions or issues, it was not a hurdle for me to personally evaluate them. In fact, of my last uh, 10 robotic lobectomies in that practice, nine were discharged on post-op day one and none readmitted. In my current practice, many of my patients come from over four hours away. I'm much less inclined to discharge on post-op day one when their closest medical care may be 200 miles away if an issue were to arise. All right, we've talked about how to train residents, how to manage lobectomy patients. Now let's look at how to perform lobectomies. Currently featured on CTSNet is an excellent video from Drs. Amara Watkins and Elliot Surveys. Dr. Watkins is a cardiothoracic surgery fellow and rising star at Beth Israel Deaconess in Boston and works with Dr. Surveys, the Director of Robotic Thoracic Surgery and Vice Chair in the Department of Surgery at Leahy Hospital. They share with us a great teaching video that shows anatomy and technical considerations for not one, not two, but all five types of lobectomies. Overall, this is a fantastic overview, and I plan to make this mandatory viewing material for our trainees here in Utah. Let's talk about a few key parts of the video. At 40 seconds, Dr. Watkins shows us where the ongoing PA normally runs beneath the confluence of the major and minor fissures on the right side. As she states, this is a common spot to start for a fissure-first approach. Around 3 minutes and 30 seconds, they show us identification of the bronchus intermedius and right upper lobe bronchial takeoff. This crotch is very important for both upper and lower lobes on the right side, as taking out that sump node here will make completing the fissure much easier later. One thing I do notice is that they have the long bipolar grasper in the left hand and Cartier in the right for this posterior dissection. It's an interesting trick that I may try next time, as it appears to give a better angle when approaching that level 11 node. Forwarding to about the 6 minute mark, we see a few additional tips. Drs. Watkins and Surveys use an additional tip-up grasper for blunt dissection around pulmonary artery branches. This is a technique I've seen before, and I think it's a nice tool to keep in your skill set. Generally, I don't think it's necessary, though. 
the long bipolar grasper usually works fine and is safe enough in experienced hands. They also use vessel loops for isolating branches prior to stapling. Similar to the tip-up, this is a technique that I no longer use. When training residents or if you're still on your learning curve, then yes, using a vessel loop or heavy silk tie is a useful way to provide safe exposure of a PA branch and access for the stapler. As you get more experience, you may find, like myself, that it isn't necessary in most situations. At eight minutes, when discussing middle lobectomies, they make a key point that I was just explaining to a resident earlier last week. In the case of an obliterated fissure, diving into the usual confluence of the major minor fissures can lead to significant parenchymal injury and air leak postoperatively. In these situations, it's best to go anterior at the junction of the middle and lower lobes where the PA is often readily accessible. This is more similar to a VATS approach. When discussing left-sided lobectomies later on, Dr. Watkins emphasizes the posterior dissection. This is key in robotic lung surgery on the left. Opening that posterior pleura and ex exposing the pulmonary artery is an important step that will allow for safe isolation and transection of artery branches later in your dissection. This video runs about 18 minutes and hits on more important robotic tips than I can mention here. Whether a trainee or far along in your robotic career, I recommend jumping on CTSNet and taking a look. You may learn a new trick for your next lobe. Thanks for listening to this week's Beat. If you have an idea for a future episode or would like to come on and chat about recent events in the cardiothoracic community, please get in touch with us at ctsnet.org. I can personally be found on Twitter using the handle at Brian Mitzman. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Keep an eye out for JANS, the CTSNet Journal and News Scan, where we pick the highest impact stories for you. For myself and the rest of the CTSNet team, thank you for spending time with us and see you next week.